0: Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com you're listening to the archaeology podcast network you're listening to the archaeology show tas goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us welcome to the podcast
1: hello and welcome to the archaeology show episode 232
0: on today's show we talk about british treasure neolithic burials in spain and the astonishingly earlier peopling of the americas
1: Let's dig a little deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because we're not digging deep enough. You'll find out in segment three. (laughs) Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, how's it going?
0: Pretty good.
1: Yeah. So we missed last week.
0: We we did for those
1: of you keeping score.
0: I see. I don't think anybody probably noticed, but maybe that's because I'm just not sure that anybody actually listens to <laughs> us like yammer on every week. So <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm curious. Does anybody like just wait for the episode on Sunday?
0: <laughs> I can't imagine they do. I mean, there I are... mean, they're probably like excited when they see it come in. If there's people that like the show, but like nobody's like looking down at their ipad not ipad iphone like where's my next episode it could happen
1: there's a reason i release everything at 1 a.m pacific time on the day that it releases and that harkens back to a long time ago when you mm-hmm. and i first started listening to a podcast 10 years ago and we were out in the field and we had ipods and flip phones and we had no way to download new podcasts in the field right. doing archaeology. So we had to download everything in the morning before 7 a.m. when we had to be out at the truck or um, in the one particular case I can think of, the boat. That's my first podcast <laughs> I ever listened to was when we were working on a project where we had a pontoon boat as our that field That was vehicle. your
0: first podcast? Really? Yeah.
1: Wow. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I'll never forget Man, it. Yeah,
0: that's a long time ago.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that's when I first started listening. And I was super irritated when... Episodes came out at like 9 a.m. And I was on the East Coast. Yeah. And I'm just like, come on, guys. <laughs> so I release at 1 a.m., so yeah. it's the next day. Um, I don't release at midnight, so it's not some weird thing. And I have to have a whole number, so it's 1 a.m. That is
0: like so OCD. Because yeah. like, it's just it doesn't not... doesn't matter anymore. No, it does not matter anymore at but all. Well, I have to pick
1: a time, so I change it. You
0: do. That's true. Yeah. I mean, consistency. In fact,
1: I'm pretty sure when I started podcasting, it wasn't even an issue. And we I said 10 years ago. 10 years ago is when... I started podcasting. Yeah. We started listening to podcasts 15, 15 plus years ago. ago. Yeah.
0: We yeah. were early into the podcast listening yeah. world. That Cleaver Lake
1: yeah. project was what? 2000. Mm. Had it be 2005 eight? or six? No. Se- se- seven, seven, or seven, or seven or eight. Seven or eight. Yeah. 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 Wow. It's a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Hashtag iPod forever.
0: <laughs> Hashtag we're <laughs> old. <laughs> Moving on.
1: Moving on. <laughs> so I always hate the headlines where archaeologists are amazed or... You know some sort of exclamation yeah yeah. but amateur archaeologists they can be amazed (laughs) yeah
0: or perhaps in disbelief maybe (laughs) you know i'm like
1: if you've decided to take on a hobby and you're out doing something and all of a sudden your hobby bears fruit why would you have disbelief you should be like yeah i knew that was gonna happen (laughs) just be confident
0: it's more like you hope it would happen yeah But you never think it actually will.
1: Right. Yeah. All right. Well, something that did happen, happened over in England. And the article title is Amateur Archaeologists Quote Disbelief unquote after mm-hmm. finding rare roman treasure in a field mm. and this was found in norfolk an area of england that i won't try to explain where that's at <laughs> actually it's suffolk south norfolk england which i don't know if you know where that's at great otherwise look it up on a map mm-hmm. uh, burston is the name of the town south norfolk i guess is the region i don't know how they decide what those mm-hmm. are and then uh england of course is yeah. the uh, island Anyway.
0: Good job. You're so helpful.
1: (laughs) Anyway, the guy's name is Nick Bateman. He took up metal detecting during the pandemic in lockdown. A lot of people took up different hobbies. Some people baked bread. Others watched all of Walking Dead and some (laughs) took up metal detecting. So, yeah. Some people
0: just decided to sell their house and move into an RV and hit the road.
1: Everybody was crazy, though. Yeah. That's universal. Yeah. (laughs) Truth. (laughs) Anyway, so a few years ago on Christmas Eve, instead of helping out his family, he decided to go out and do a couple hours of metal detecting. And, you know, I'm just knocking on him. He probably had nothing to do. Oh, probably
0: not. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? I know. (laughs) I get it.
1: So he went out to do that, and he, he picked up this signal, and... I don't know how much everybody listening to this knows about metal detectors and I don't know what kind he has, but if he's calling it like a hobby and he had somebody that taught him all the, he knows, mm-hmm. modern metal detectors don't just like give you some random signal and then you start digging. I mean, they can literally tell you what you're looking yeah, at sometimes. They
0: can tell you the, the type of metal yeah, or at least to, what they th- what it thinks it is. And right. then, of course, you have to dig to verify that yeah sometimes
1: you got to tune it in to to say i'm looking for this oh yeah that's true you can like exclude
0: right stuff if you want to it depends
1: on the the metal detector but he thought he had picked up a bottle cap uh, which is interesting Uh, Mm -hmm. probably i don't know you can't see the shape of anything it's not that sophisticated but he thought it was a bottle cap and he'd found lots of those but not really anything of that much value Mm -hmm. in his couple years of metal detecting Uh, a few inches down however he saw gold And he thought it was a gold painted bottle cap still.
0: That's what I would think, honestly. (laughs) Like, I totally get why he thought that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Turns out it was a flat gold disc.
0: Yeah. He probably still thought it was like, you know, an oldish coin at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it turns out it was actually a 0.8 inch diameter earring with a hole in a projection at the top. And it was made up of these two discs that were soldered together.
1: Yeah. The picture in the article here shows them separated, almost like you unfolded them like a book. Yeah. And the two halves are next to each other, but they were definitely like they were one. They weren't found separately. It
0: looks like that's the two sides of the image and they just placed the two sides next to each other digitally in the image. They may have done
1: that, but they said in here there were two halves soldered together. Yeah. So I don't know. I, just, I assumed it was two discs laying flat on top of each other, but actually they don't really describe it very well. And you're right. That looks like the front and doesn't, back.
0: Doesn't it look like a mirror image almost? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like so a front back situation. It's hard to
1: say. There may have been two pieces. There may have been mm-hmm. one piece, but it was still pretty small. Yeah. You can see the, the scale here. It says 20.5 millimeters by 22.1 millimeters. So mm-hmm. a little over two centimeters each. Yeah. Which is pretty small. That's under an inch. Mm-hmm. Isn't an inch two point something centimeters, I think? I, can't I don't know. In our yeah. notes,
0: we've got it, it was 0.8. Oh yeah, point out. I already said that. Yeah. So that makes sense. But it's interesting because I can see how when you were digging that up, you might think that you're looking at a bottle cap or maybe an old coin or something, but that is definitely definitely an earring once you once you really clean it off and look at it. It's really cool.
1: Now here's the thing about the English. It seems like I'm I'm astonished actually at their integrity sometimes. Yeah. There is a rule, a law, an act. It's called the Treasure Act of nineteen ninety six. First off, I'm surprised it's like not the Treasure Act of 1776, but anyway, it's the <laughs> Treasure Act of 1996. And what it basically says is that if you find something that could be classified as treasure, and I guess that's left up to your own Your, your own, own discretion. Yeah, yeah, your own discretion. So if you think it's treasure or some you think somebody else would think it's treasure, you have to report it to your county coroner, of all people, within hmm. 14 days. And if it's deemed treasure, if it's not, they'll just give it back to you. Uh, But if it's deemed treasure, you have to offer it for sale to a museum or some other sort of curatorial facility. And they have to offer fair value for the object.
0: Hmm. That rule is just so crazy. It's like specific enough that you know you have to do something, but also vague enough that you can try to jump through a loophole or skirt around the law if that is what you want to do. Right. Like I would wonder
1: you know, obviously a hoard of Roman gold is going to be treasure, right? Right. Like, you but, can't get
0: around that. That's pretty obvious. But
1: what, what like, a really cool, you know, 2,000-year-old ceramic pot. That's treasure to an archaeologist. Yeah. treasure to a museum. Is it treasure to the government?
0: I There's millions like, of those, probably. Yeah. I, they must have, like, a more yeah. defined set of rules somewhere for what constitutes treasure. Because it just yeah. depends. If it's, like, a ceramic plate from 50 years ago, mm-hmm. maybe not so much. But if it's from... 250 years ago then maybe it is so, right i don't know
1: well the researchers that ended up with this in their hands they tried to figure out what the heck this thing was and place it in time mm-hmm. and they originally thought it was medieval which because they can you can see a tiny cross on one of the discs and actually if you look at the picture on the right up at the top just below the the little connector part for the earring uh, you can see a tiny little cross Uh, it kind of looks like it has a rounded top and bottom so cross is a little bit dubious but it does look like a cross yeah
0: it does kind of
1: and apparently that was a common thing for the medieval period but it's also a common mistake to place it in the medieval period just because you saw that Mm -hmm. uh, because they looked at it a little closer and what they ended up seeing was a laurel wreath I with was an eagle.
0: Just gonna say, I see the laurel on mm-hmm. on either side, sort of curving around the edges of it. Yeah, I can, you can see that too. You can really see it on the left, the left side. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, once they saw that, that places it squarely in the Roman period. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very a very Roman thing to do.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So yeah, they paid him for it. They didn't say how much it was, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I didn't write this in our notes, but he's proud to see it in the museum because it's in their local that's museum. Cool. It's called the Dis Museum in Norfolk, mm-hmm. and it's part of an exhibition on the Roman Empire. So
0: That's so cool. Yeah.
1: I mean, he got paid for doing something that was a hobby, and now everybody can enjoy it. And mm-hmm. I think that's a good takeaway from everybody that goes out and, and possibly finds something, whether accidentally or intentionally. You know, we don't have any way to compensate you here in this Mm -hmm. country, in the United States, and you're probably not going to get compensated. To be honest with you, like a museum's more than likely not going to buy it because here we don't have that kind of a law, and that just encourages looting, right? It really
0: does. England has a lot of stuff.
1: Well, yeah, true. Yeah,
0: but my thought, like, what I like about the rule in England is that that you are required to offer it up for sale, Mm -hmm. and they are required to purchase it at a fair value. So, sort of everybody comes away with a fair... Hopefully, they walk away from it feeling like it was a fair deal. In this country, though, because we don't have any rules like that, it's... I don't know. I just... I feel like it encourages people to loot, like you said. Yeah. It encourages them to hoard and keep things in their homes because... There's no reason for them to get rid of it. I say, what is the point? What is the point in having these ancient artifacts just in your house that nobody can see? Yeah. Because you can't do anything with them because it's illegal. So you don't want to be like flaunting it, right? So it's just like, what's the point? You might as well try to offer it to a museum or a collection or something like that.
1: It's an interesting thought though, right? Because some people... Really like to have like display objects in their house yeah. as, a, as almost a status symbol, you know. And that still, I would say, persists today amongst probably the the, the slightly wealthier. Mm-hmm. But even people who aren't overtly wealthy, if they've had hand-me-downs or something like that, you know, heirlooms that were passed down, mm-hmm. you know, like that plate you've got sitting on the wall, yeah, you know, yeah. that was passed down by your great grandmother. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a stupid plate at this point, but, but it has meaning because it's implied yeah. meaning from the family. It's
0: family history. I totally well, get that. And at
1: some point, if anything becomes old enough. It becomes valuable. Yeah. Right? To quote uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so that's interesting. And I'm glad that he saw the value in, uh, in actually, yep. you know, giving it to the his in.
0: community and then being able to yeah. know that he contributed to the local museum, I think is really, yeah. really cool. So,
1: yeah. So, real quick, Roman period what the heck does that mean in Britain Britain was part of the Roman Empire for nearly 300 years
0: mm-hmm.
1: it started with the invasion by Emperor Claudius in 43 CE and the Roman rule ended in the early 5th century
0: it's always so much later than I think it's going to yeah. be because you know you think of Rome being like thousands of years but really they didn't really get to you know Britain until much later and they didn't last there for very long either
1: you know why it ended you know why Roman rule ended why because they stopped roaming Oh. We'll be back in a minute. Oh. <laughs> That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to episode 232. I can't believe it was 232.
0: Right. (laughs) Of the archaeology
1: show. Yeah. So this next article here, you actually took most of the notes on. So yeah. yeah. What are we talking about?
0: Yeah, so this article, we found it in sciencealert.com. And it's called "Ancient Human Remains Reveal How the Stone Age Buried Its Dead." And- oh, what does
1: the Stone Age mean? That's crazy. <laughs> Where can I find out that information?
0: You know what? You can't. It's just like it's not it's mm. not easy to define. And we're in Spain, not in not well, in the Northern Europe area. So, right.
1: well, according yeah. to. A podcast I heard. Stone <laughs> Age at least tells me one thing. And that they hadn't mastered or at least made part of their everyday practice, the smelting of metals. Truth. Yes. Yeah. It definitely tells me that.
0: Yeah. All right. And the reason they use Stone Age here is because the article is about evidence of early Neolithic burial practices in Spain. Yeah. And the Neolithic time period is part of the Stone Age.
1: Well, and the thing that really gets me here is you know, about the Stone Age in particular, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the fact that they didn't smelt any metals or anything like that. And they were like, oh, they were such Stone Age cavemen. But one of the things that prompted this article and things they were looking at here is they analyzed uh, ceramic vessels found mm-hmm. at the Galleria del Silex and the Alta Parque Mountains, which prompted a reanalysis of the human remains found there. Yeah. So first off, they had pottery. Yeah. And they were burying their dead. Yes. These weren't Cavemen,
0: no, 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 and women.
1: No. I mean, they probably did live in caves. but it, it was a cave, but <laughs> yeah. you know that doesn't mean they were um, not sophisticated in their way.
0: Yeah, and that's that's so true in archaeology. Just because you don't have evidence of something doesn't mean it wasn't happening. You just haven't found the evidence yet. Yeah, and that does seem like this is the case in this situation. So before now, we didn't have very good evidence for early Neolithic funerary practices or rites in this area of Spain. So what we did know is that these people tended to move around frequently. They were in small groups. And that usually means that you just don't leave a lot of evidence behind when you're kind of traveling in those small sort of roaming bands, if you will.
1: Roaming bands?
0: (laughs) Not those kind. (laughs) Oh, shit. So in other parts of Europe, like France, Portugal, Andalusia, there is evidence that contemporaneous groups were using caves to enter their dead. But this is the first time that we had seen anything like that in Spain. And specifically this area is located in the central Iberian Peninsula. Right. So we've had evidence of it on in Portugal and in France, which are on either side of Spain. So like you can kind of assume it was happening yeah. in Spain too. It's just that we didn't have the evidence yet.
1: Another cool thing I like about archeology span is just because you've found something, you've analyzed it, maybe mm-hmm. you've excavated, uh, the research often isn't done. You yeah. know, there's always different things, different takes somebody could have on something. There's there's people going back and looking at older collections and mm-hmm. sort of doing a reanalysis either with new technology or with just a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. And evidence of that is here because the Galleria del Silex cave system was actually found in 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, it has cave paintings, engravings, as well as funnel and human remains and ceramics. So it's got all kinds of stuff and probably could be investigated for the next you know many many years i
0: mean there's lots to find there the cave was actually sealed i don't know if that was naturally or on purpose probably naturally sealed Mm -hmm. at the end of the bronze age and it remained completely intact until these modern excavations began which means no looting everything is basically in situ from the last time that Mm -hmm. any human people touched it. I mean, you can't control what animals and stuff are doing, obviously, but humans, you know, didn't have any effect on it since it was sealed up. So that's great.
1: If it was sealed up, there probably weren't too many animals in there except for burrowing ones that could get in. Yeah, But it's a cave, so... You know, it's probably got some hard walls.
0: Yeah, it depends on what they mean by sealed, too. Does that yeah. just mean, like, people couldn't get in there, but various other things could?
1: A lot of times it's cave-ins.
0: Yeah, yeah, it yeah. could be that. Yep. So, either way, people couldn't mess with it. So, that was very good for preservation.
1: You know what's it's called when they bring all the stuff out of the cave?
0: Called, Do I want to know? It's called a cave out. <laughs> Why? How does your brain work? <laughs> all right, so... Researchers initially thought that all the remains in the cave were Bronze Age. Oh, that's good stuff. <laughs> Is it that? <laughs> However, the analysis of these ceramic vessels that were found with some of these remains actually dated back to the early Neolithic. So that pushed it back by, I think, a couple hundred, if not thousands of years to go from bronze back to Neolithic. Yeah. And because of this reanalysis of the ceramic vessels, they were like, well, okay, we need to rethink (laughs) this whole thing. Yeah. So it prompted a whole reanalysis of the remains of four different individuals that were found. I think they were found like in association with the vessels or Mm -hmm. near them or for some reason they chose these four to do this reanalysis on. And they did radiocarbon dating on teeth and bones.
1: Yeah. I wonder if... I don't know if the article went into this depth I don't remember seeing it but were these human remains Actually found close to 1972 In that Um, time frame
0: That is a good question I don't Remember seeing that in this article either I'm not sure when they were actually found.
1: Well, it's, this just goes to one of those new technology things, right? Mm-hmm. Because if they were found in the mid-70s, yeah, radiocarbon dating had been invented by then. Yeah. But it wasn't in wide use for archaeology yet.
0: Right. So, and it couldn't do what it can do today, too. Like it's well, it probably wasn't as
1: refined. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they didn't even know back then as archaeologists that yeah. it was a thing, probably.
0: And they might not have used it at all. They might have had all these artifacts that you know, relative dating gave them the date already and they hadn't found or they hadn't done this reanalysis yet to push things back into the Neolithic time Mm -hmm. period. So they just sort of went, okay, bronze age, Moving along, you know? Yeah.
1: It probably would have been super expensive, too. I mean, nowadays, I'm pretty sure it's only a couple hundred bucks to send off a sample. Is
0: it really? Yeah. It's (laughs) it's actually
1: pretty affordable. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of different choices on where you can send them.
0: Right. That's cool. So,
1: And if anybody from Beta Analytic is listening, we're happy to do sponsorship and advertising.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Anytime. (laughs) So they found that while one of these remains were from the Bronze Age, and they were alive sometime between 1880 and 1690 BCE. The other three dated between 5307 and 4897 BCE, which does push it back that few more thousand years into the early Neolithic time period. Nice. And this is really cool. This is why it's so significant is because the remains, they were all deliberately placed in pits. Mm -hmm. They were far from the entrance. So you had to get in there to to bury them. Protected, if you will. Protected. You go there with a purpose, right? You're not just like dumping them and walking away. Mm -hmm. And they also had these ceramic vessels, which they hypothesized could have contained offerings i think they still need to do more analysis on that so i wonder
1: if they likely contained you know like food like nuts and things could like have, that because yeah there's so many early i don't want to call it religion just yet but it really is a religion but early practices around burials and things Rituals? like this that thought i guess eh, it's always <laughs> ritual yeah so if they it really is ritual though yeah and you know they they often thought that hey this person is dying and if they're going to a different place, mm-hmm. people always. And I don't know if these guys thought that, but if they really thought that they were going to a different place spiritually, a lot of cultures up until very recently thought that they were physically going to another yeah. place. And, and so you supplies. need to take these things with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. you're going on a journey. Here's some food.
0: Yeah, you got to have your and food. You got to have your blankets. Yeah, here's take a, your best jewelry. Here's you know? a bunch of
1: virgins and a horse. <laughs> Do whatever you need. So,
0: wow. <laughs> There are only two other known caves in this area that have early Neolithic remains, but the difference is that those were found in a domestic context. So like around domestic goods and domestic Mm, remains, food, cooking, that kind of stuff. So that does feel very different from this one because this cave appears to have only been used for burials. There's not any domestic evidence that they have found yet. You always have to put that disclaimer on things that, you know, who knows what they're going to find next.
1: It's always crazy to me just looking at those dates again. You know, they're three thousand years apart, mm-hmm. two to three thousand years apart. And when you're digging a pit and you're burying something three thousand five hundred years ago, I mean, did they encounter the bones of the ones from from earlier? And if they did, were they like <laughs> these are sacred, or did they not care? I wonder. But three thousand years yeah. of use of that cave, yeah. You know, probably not continuous use. It probably caved in and and you know opened back up again many times, but. Yeah, it's just crazy to think when you look at those time frames, you're like, Oh, three people were found buried there. Yeah. They were separated by three
0: thousands thousand. of years. It's it's crazy when you think about it because like think of somebody in, in Italy or in Rome going to bury their dead or start a new graveyard. Mm-hmm. And they could potentially be be encountering a Roman cemetery that is that old. But yeah. so what what do you do today when you look when you're thinking about I don't know. There's, the whole concept is kind of crazy because there's that much difference between them as there is between us and the Romans. So, yeah. yeah. But the one thing that does remain the same is that people like the same places. The Romans 3,000 years ago, we like the same places that they liked 3,000 years ago. And the same was probably true of these people. So the researchers are concluding here that these were likely some of the first humans in the region to develop these more complex burial practices. And that because this cave was like special for whatever reason, it just continued, you know, because people are people and they like the same places and they like these special places. And yeah, 3000 years later, they're still using it to bury their dead.
1: It's such a time bias though, right? Like you look at this and they're like making this sweeping determination. But again, separated by 3000 years, how complex was this practice if it didn't change for 3000 years.
0: Well, time moved a lot slower back then, you know. Well, and and the there I'm sure there were subtle differences between the practices. I'm just
1: saying, it seems it seems pretty obvious if you want somebody to not be eaten because you you think that, you know, they uh, they're a cherished member of the family or somebody yeah, like yeah. they're dead now and you're like well I really don't want this person to be eaten I mean Joe over there they can eat him but
0: <laughs> this person but, is special but Mary enough. we're
1: gonna bury her in the right. cave right we're gonna cover her with dirt well,
0: but you're already making an assumption there though why why would you think that one person would be buried and another wouldn't like that oh we this- do that today. Well, I mean...
1: I mean, we treat people differently based on our relationships with them.
0: Or based on their preferences, too. I mean... Well, yeah. Nowadays, we take
1: their preferences into account, but I don't know about back then. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Anyway. Well, the whole thing is very interesting because, you know this is a complex funeral practice that we hadn't seen before. And it's filling in this map across Europe of where this was happening, how early it was happening Mm -hmm. so that you can make broader assumptions about the the population at that time period across the the region. So, yeah.
1: All right. Well, we're going to go back a a couple more years on (laughs) this next article and talk about some pretty outlandish theories that may or may not be true. We'll find out back in a minute. All right. Welcome back to, 232 of the TAS. <laughs> all right, so... Wow. Yeah. Okay, so this article... Now, the link in our show notes is from Apple News. Uh, it's a really easy thing for us to look at. There's actually really good curatorial devices in there with, like, you know, searching terms and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we try to find the actual link to something because not everybody has an iPhone or mm-hmm. an iPad, right? And they, they don't all have access to... You, you guys don't all have access to um, Apple News. Yeah. However... This is from Canadian Geographic, which you can find, obviously, on the internet, but I searched every way I possibly could to try to find the original article on Canadian Geographic and I could not find it.
0: I did the same thing. I just was like, well, maybe our brains work differently and I would be able to find it. Nope. Cannot find it.
1: I think this might be not, it's a very short article. I don't think it's probably a feature article and it's probably one of those things in the magazine that's like a you know, one of those little featurettes or yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know, it's almost a book review.
0: Yeah, really. It kind of yeah, we'll talk
1: about it. Anyway, yeah. it's called estimated time of arrival, which again, that leads me to also believe that that's a regularly titled thing. And they're just talking about this here. Yeah. I don't know if that's a unique title for this article. Maybe. Anyway, the subtitle is emerging research suggests humans may have arrived in the Western hemisphere tens of thousands of years earlier than the current scientific consensus. We hear that a lot.
0: Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, so, the book that is being, I, I'm going to just call it a book review because I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It, the book is called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. It was written by Paulette Steves and published in 2022.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it says up here, data and research by Paulette Steves, words by Crawford Killian with mapping by Chris Brackley. I would be real surprised to see if Paulette Steves actually even knew this was happening. Yeah. Right. I feel like they just picked it up and they're they're attributing read, all the data to her. Yep,
0: yeah, read the yeah. book and put together this article right. based on what they read in the book. That's what it seems like.
1: Yeah. Now Paulette Steves, she's an indigenous archaeologist professor at Algoma University, Canadian research chair in healing and reconciliation and of course an author of the book we just mentioned and she does a bunch of other things as well. She's also been on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Mm-hmm. She was interviewed by Jessica Yukinto of the Heritage Voices podcast. Hmm. And I've actually talked to a few other people that are that are hosts of various shows on this network and some other indigenous archaeologists actually and Paulette Steves is a very polarizing person. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying what she's what she's doing is you know, bad or wrong. It's just that what she says is not part of the mainstream typically. Yeah. Therefore she's somewhat ostracized for it. Yeah. But she's to her credit, she does stick to her guns.
0: She does. That's true.
1: Yeah. So what's the crazy thing going on here? Well, the bread and butter of this thing is she says that people have been present in the Western hemisphere for over 130,000 years and possibly earlier. That's a pretty big claim.
0: Yeah, that is big. And if you've listened to this podcast at all in the last few years, you'll know that it's... We date human occupation of North America to somewhere in the 12,000 range for sure. And probably pushing back a few more thousand years based on... Yeah, based on recent evidence and recent sites. And there's even more recent evidence going back further than that, but like most of the archaeological world isn't ready to say it's older than that yet even though it does seem like it's inching further and further back maybe into the you know late teens even early 20s but but 130,000 years that is a big jump
1: yeah and the article the guys didn't even do their like this Crawford Killian didn't even really I mean do their research very well because he says here that uh The scientific consensus has long held, now that's not wrong, that humans have been in the Western Hemisphere for about 11,000 years since the arrival of peoples using Clovis technology to make hunting tools. Now, first off, they probably didn't arrive with Clovis technology. That was probably invented here, but also it's pretty well known that the Clovis were not the first ones here. Right. And the Clovis aren't even a people. It's the name of a point given to a name of a projectile point found in Clovis, New Mexico. And it's all over North and South America. Mm-hmm. It's largely in the American West. Well, actually the Southwest Southeast, there's not too many of them, them up here.
0: You can find them everywhere though. I mean, it's Mostly just everywhere, a, t- yeah. it's a typical, it's the shape, shape that, worked. that worked. Yeah. And they just used yeah. it. And it was probably great for the big game that they had back there. Yeah. And, I don't know if there's a consensus on whether or not it was developed independently in different places or if there was one origin and it sort of spread from there, but either way, it certainly didn't come here from, well, wherever they came from, (laughs) it was developed here for sure.
1: Well, and that's, yeah, that's the whole thing here is they don't, they don't mention that at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have pretty solid evidence. I just recorded a podcast episode for the rock art podcast that has just come out as you're listening to this and it's about the peopling of the Americas and uh, that's with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and it's, I mean, pretty well, pretty solid that we go back 14,000 years, right? So that's not even, that's not even accurate. Yeah. Um, So what does Paula Steve's base her research on? She says she's, Researched over the last 24 years just a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, she started by looking at uh, sites that appear to date before pre Clovis times and instantly found over 500 articles that date to pre Clovis. Not surprising. That's
0: not surprising. There's sure. lots of stuff that
1: dates to pre Clovis. Yeah. So that's not hard these days. Yeah. And she said she looked at uh, these sites. They're scattered from Alaska to Florida, Brazil to Chile, so both continents, mm-hmm. North and South America. And she says she's been cautious to publish her research citing fear of academic suicide. I think it's the ship has sailed on that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, she, wrote, she wrote a whole book about it instead. Yeah. But just so, going back to the whole like pre Clovis thing and how she, there, you know, over 500 articles about pre Clovis sites. Yeah. Like pre Clovis could be. 500 years older than that, you know, like just because it's pre-Clovis doesn't mean it's 130,000 years ago. Right. That's, there's not 500 articles about that. Right. So just, just know that that's not what that means.
1: Yeah. And some of her evidence here, actually some of her evidence, I actually think there's some merit to and others I really question. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm questioning it because. I'm falling into the same trap or if uh, I just need to open my eyes and look a little closer because the more, again, the more things we find that are like, oh, that's not true. Eventually, some of it's going to be true, mm-hmm. right? Like it mm-hmm. can all be not true. Yeah. So one of her key pieces of evidence is something I hadn't heard of in a really long time, probably since I was in college. And that's the Calico site in California. I first yeah. learned about that when I read one of Lewis Leakey's books. I read most of Louis Leakey's books and mm-hmm. he was an early paleoanthropologist in Africa, You know, him and his wife eventually found, I mean, most of the hominid fossils that we know and love from Tanzania and Kenya, and their family continues on to that legacy. Uh, But back in the 60s, he was called over uh, on a National Geographic grant. And I remember this in particular because this is where I read that he always travels with a bottle of yeast, and to make his own bread. To make his own bread. <laughs> yeah. He would, he basically sourced flour locally and yeah. then he brought the yeast cause he had this particular yeast that he liked and mm-hmm. they would make this bread in the hotel room. And back then hotel rooms probably always had some way to cook, but he didn't have an yeah. oven. Even he would just put it in something. I don't know what it was ambiguous as to what that was. And then <laughs> set it near like a heated radiator or something like that. Go out for the day and come back and have bread.
0: Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. But so anyway, sure.
1: <laughs> anyway, this is back in the sixties and it, yeah. it was reported to contain flakes. The calico side was like a quarry mm-hmm. and, and it was estimated that they dated between 50 and 80,000 years ago, and some say up to 200,000 years ago. And there's really little evidence to support any of that. Yeah. Right? So it's crazy.
0: I just, I do have to say, and I know that this is, is a site that is definitely contentious in the archaeological mm-hmm. world about whether or not it's it's accurate. Yeah. But same with like the cerruti site, right? Where they're saying that there's these cut marks that look like they're made by people. Yeah. The thing with a site that is this old 50,000, 80,000, even up, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of years old, Mm -hmm. you're not going to have any organic remains left to study or test. You simply won't. You're not going to be able to prove that there were humans by having bones or having the things that are left behind that you can test and say that was definitely human. So you kind of have to rely on what evidence you can find in the rocks and in the tools I just you just have to be careful because flakes happen naturally, too. And you need more. Yeah, you got to have more. You got to have a lot more than just a handful of flakes.
1: There is other evidence, though. Oh, and this is well. where I'm starting to follow along with her. Maybe not this first one. But well, there is there is some merit to this. Um She does cite indigenous oral histories, which just like a game of telephone, oral histories are fraught with inaccuracy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. They can be. Uh, it's not saying that they're all completely inaccurate but these stories are passed down you know there's there's probably some attempt at fidelity there so they don't they don't get changed at all but you can't guarantee that they weren't you can't guarantee that somebody wanted to emphasize one thing when they retold the story and then that emphasis carried on and then kind of changed the story a little bit. There's no there's no saying that hasn't. But yeah. she does cite that accounts of environmental events like a volcanic eruptions, floods, and extinct species, things we can prove conclusively when and where they happened, are mentioned in oral histories, giving credence to the oral histories themselves in her mind. So, yeah. So the stuff we can't prove in the oral histories, she's saying, is also likely true because these things are true. It's, it's I just, pretty dubious. I have
0: so <laughs> many problems with that. I mean, I understand that the indigenous viewpoint should be taken into account when you're studying these people. Right. Yeah. But when we look at the history of people in Europe and or in the Middle East, rather, and we look at the Bible and some of the other old, old texts, like, yeah, sure. These floods and things are mentioned in the Bible, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example. Like, of course, we know that there were floods and that they happen If there's even a way to like line it up with the real things mm-hmm. that happened in real time. But we don't also look at the things around those stories in the Bible or in Gilgamesh or in the Odyssey, for example, and say, yeah. well, those things that probably did really happen you know, are true. So therefore all of these other crazy things also probably happened. Like that's not, that's not how that works. And I don't think that we should treat indigenous oral histories any differently than we treat the ones that are coming out of other cultures and other parts of the world. They don't inform our history. They're an insight into the culture that created them, but they don't inform the actual history. You need evidence for that. Okay. Soapbox down. (laughs) I'm gone. Bye. Well, and I, and I think
1: you could use it to, 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 start forming hypotheses right because if you can prove that a certain oral history is really dictating events that actually happened that we do have proof for when you look at the events that we don't have proof for that they're mentioning you can you know look for a hypothesis around that so if they mentioned some volcanic eruption or something that we like no that didn't ever happen well look for evidence and see if it did and if Mm -hmm. it did great if it didn't then you know it's hard to say what they were really talking about
0: but you get into like the psychic time psychic thing though right Where like really though well not this but like like when these things that so commonly happen just because well a story says it happens and then one also actually happened doesn't mean that those two are related sure that's like correlation causation logical fallacy right like they are not necessarily related
1: i have a feeling the oral histories are a little more
0: if uh, they're more specific and they're yeah. more detailed, then that would be different. Yeah. yeah. But, but if it's anyway. just like, there was a flood, there was an eruption. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. That happened everywhere all the time.
1: There are two other pieces of evidence that point to time frames mm-hmm. when, when people came here. One of them is not mentioned in this article, and I'm not sure if Paulette Steves puts any credence to it because, well, again, it's not mentioned here, but this brief brief article. Mm-hmm. But it's genetic evidence. There's been some pretty mm. solid genetic studies done on Native Americans, and I don't know if there are, how many has been done in, like, South America, but mm-hmm. there's been pretty solid ones done across Native American populations that point to a genetic history, you know, 10 to 15 to 20,000 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, leading from Siberia, Eastern Russia, uh, Northern China, that whole area yeah. right there. Yeah, You know, so looking at that, and we, we understand genetic clocks and how they work, and, and that's pretty solid science, yeah. you know?
0: Well, like we said at the beginning of this article, there definitely is evidence that keeps pushing back those time Mm -hmm. frames, pushing back, pushing back, maybe even into 20,000 years ago. So there's no reason to think that we might find more evidence and this genetic stuff is a really cool way to do that because it's different and it doesn't rely on finding physical remains that are so difficult to find it well-preserved when you get that old. So that would be great. And I don't think anybody would refute those kind of mm-hmm. that kind of evidence when it comes up. It's, it's just these yeah. broad claims of, well, these things that I've read over the years, sure. you know, I don't know. It's.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the <laughs> things that is mentioned in the article and they either talked to her or it was in the book um, and linguist named Joanna Nichols she says that the number of indigenous languages in the uh, Americas points to a long history in the western mm. hemisphere at least 35,000 years which 35,000 years is becoming incredibly believable.
0: That seems feasible yeah. with more evidence and yeah. yeah that
1: I mean it's still it still relies on an assumption that like a group of people came down and said, Mm -hmm. let's populate the continent. Right. Right. I I really think that it had to have been a number of different migrations and therefore bringing in different groups of people, different genetic material, different languages even. Right. Yeah. And then bringing all that into play. So.
0: But that is another really cool direction to pull evidence in. It's different than physical remains, again, you know? And there's
1: so many variables, too. and I, I really love to study linguistics to find that out because if you're trying to look at the, the evolu- evolution of language and you're looking at a language over here on, say, the eastern coast of the United States and then a language in, like, coastal California, are there similarities? If there's some similarities, well, what are they? And then can you really start diving deep into the, even if there's a written component, there usually isn't, but um, the just the language component itself. Mm-hmm. And finding out where this drift happens, and then you could look at the languages across the country and start yeah. lining these up and saying, oh, though well, this came from this one, and this came from this one, and you know, there's a lot of science there, but man, so many variables. I don't know how they do it.
0: I know. It seems so complicated, yeah. but so cool all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: They did make a cool analogy. They said that the evidence that we're looking at here, uh, well, I don't know if Paulette Steve says this or not, or the article, but um, they did say it's like the deep field photo that the James Webb telescope took back in 2022. And I don't know if you haven't seen this, look it up because it's, ridiculously amazing Mm -hmm. um it looks like somebody took like billions of pins and put them into a black sheet and then shine a light behind it and every single one of those tiny little pieces of light is a galaxy right and that's what the james webb telescope showed us and it made us rethink our place in the universe and and really what we know the universe you know we can barely do anything outside of our solar system let alone our galaxy Mm -hmm. and our galaxy is so massive like I'm going to bring fiction into this against Star Trek. (laughs) They go all over the place. You know, Voyager was cast 70 years away at maximum warp, and yet they still never left the galaxy.
0: Right. (laughs) There's
1: there's only been at least one time I can think of that they left the galaxy, and that was a fantastical moment, and they got right back. But uh, (laughs) either way, it was just like inconceivable at that technology level to leave the galaxy, and there's billions of galaxies. Mm -hmm. That's just nuts.
0: I mean, that is a great analogy, but I just don't, I'm not sure it completely applies here because that is irrefutable evidence of all (laughs) these galaxies. Whereas we have sort of a cobbled together group of sites that are, not proven to be as old as right. either she or the people who have reported on those sites are saying. And it's just, it's very contentious. And I think you said something one time that always stuck with me. And that is that we might be missing evidence because we've never thought to look deep enough for it. Oh yeah. That was maybe back when we were talking about the Surity site or something, but I mentioned if, that on
1: the rock art podcast. We recorded did you, today. Yeah.
0: It's a really interesting idea because like we definitely shouldn't stop thinking when we hit the 12,000 year mark, wherever we're working. Right. Yeah. Cause if you don't push past that, you're not going to find anything that comes before it. And I think a lot of people, you know, you hear that you stop when you hit sterile or you hit you hit the sterile non-cultural level or whatever, Mm -hmm. but like, you don't know it's not cultural until you check it. So I think pushing past that is going to be one way that archaeology can find more evidence.
1: Well, I don't know if I coined this term or not, but I mentioned this on the rock art podcast and I called it regulatory bias because oh wow. yeah, most of the time, I mean, you're you're told to stop at a certain point, a mm-hmm. certain criteria, and a lot of times, you know, most of the evidence we have does not come from academic mm-hmm. digs, right? They come from cultural resource management projects, which are funded and and have a finite amount of cash and yeah. have very specific things they're supposed to do. So, part of that regulatory bias is. Well, we're putting in a parking lot and we're only going to disturb the ground down, you know, four or five feet.
0: Yep. Therefore,
1: we don't need to go further. Yeah. Like the scientists might want to, the archaeologists might want to, but you can't just do whatever you want to. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're not allowed to do that. And then there's other things that just, that just make me crazy. I was thinking about that auger survey you did. And I mentioned this Mm -hmm. on the, um, on the show, you guys were going down what, three, four meters
0: yeah, something like and that. And you're pulling mm-hmm.
1: out eight thousand year old stuff at three or four meters. Yeah. And you were going through the other layers because that's what the research study was trying to find the other things, right? Right. So you're going down three or four meters, and you're not that far from, you know, the the Atlantic. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you're on yeah. the coastal plain. Yeah. And yet, out closer to the water, you know, we're stopping at eighty centimeters, less than three feet, because we're hitting water. Yeah. You know, we say this is the water table, which conceivably. Well, functionally, I can't go deeper because it's just really not possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the whole thing's going to cave in and it's just not feasible. You need
0: a completely different methodology if you're going to go through that. Yeah. Well, first
1: off, 8,000 years ago, that wasn't the water table.
0: No, it definitely wasn't. (laughs) The water table (laughs) was much lower. Yeah.
1: You know, so it's just like these all these things that we do and, and it just contributes to the fact that we are not digging deep enough.
0: Yeah. The biases are so and they're not even on purpose, right? Like you're not biased against going deeper when you hit water, you just literally can't, you can't do it safely. (laughs) You don't have the right materials to do it. You have to completely change the way you're processing artifacts. It's not that you can't do it. It's that it, it's just totally different. And most CRM projects are not going to account for that. Academic projects maybe sure, but they probably have to go into it with that idea. So they have the right funding and resources in place to do that kind of work. And it just, it's like the whole field, the whole academic and, and CRM field are sort of biased against doing more than what we've done traditionally, you know.
1: There's only one time I would say you're justified in stopping.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: bedrock. <laughs> however, oh,
0: yeah, true.
1: However, that's yeah. not even true in some cases, yeah. right? Because you look at the the entire uh, Pacific Mountain Range, ranges, all the different mountain ranges that we have here from the Cascades on mm-hmm. down they're all volcanic. Yeah. Right. So especially if you've ever driven down Highway 395 near Ridgecrest, California, right on the north end there, before you get into Ridgecrest and before it splits off, you can see the basalt lava flows. Mm -hmm. Those didn't happen that long ago. Right. Right. So there could feasibly be stuff underneath that that's Mm -hmm. still cultural. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we have the Mazama ash layer, right? Mm -hmm. Now that wasn't that wasn't lava, but it was near the mountain, I'm sure. So are there cultural things underneath there? Yeah. What about Mount Rainier? And
0: there could be you know? really well-preserved stuff under there, too. I That's mean, what I'm saying. Not like Pompeii, exactly. But yeah. like if you get covered in a layer of ash or lava or whatever, like your preservation could actually yeah. be really great.
1: Olduvai yeah. Gorge in Tanzania is... You know, has deposits dating back to 2.01 million years ago. Why that date? Because that's when you hit basalt mm-hmm. and nobody's ever gone through it. Yeah. The basalt's too thick. Yeah. I think it's been tested or somehow they've, you know, done seismic studies or something like that. It's just ridiculously thick basalt. Yeah. I mean, the chances there being something older than that, I would say in most places are pretty slim, but you're talking about an area where humanity evolved you know, from its ancestors eight to 20 million years mm-hmm. ago. So if that basalt was laid down 5 million years ago, there sure, other stuff, stuff under it. Right. Yeah. yeah. We'll just never know. So,
0: well, what are our take- takeaways here with this article?
1: I just think we need to keep an open mind. Honestly, yeah. I wouldn't say Paulette Steves is completely out in left field. I think that I, I wish more researchers would be thinking outside the box, but reining it in a little bit, mm-hmm. waiting for evidence, you know, saying, Hey, here's a hypothesis. We need to go try to prove this or not prove this, you know, and or or disprove it and not say conclusively. She's almost doing just as bad as somebody saying there's nothing before Clovis.
0: Pre-Clovis doesn't exist. This (laughs) is almost just as bad to me. Same idea. Like you just need evidence to back up what you're saying and coming in super hard on the opposite side. It doesn't, I don't think that does anything any better there. You just need the evidence and nobody, I mean, we're not saying, and I don't think most people would say no, a hundred percent. No, well, actually, a lot of people probably would, but yep. like, open-minded researchers are not going to say no. It's just you got to have evidence for it, and right now, the yeah. evidence is just not there. The evidence is do more work always.
1: If, if we extrapolate <laughs> from segment two, where this so so-called complex burial practice didn't change over the course of three thousand years, mm-hmm. not even people that are connected to each other more than likely, mm-hmm. you know, no real cultural history there. Probably, I mean, just. Nothing. It's just they're still doing things the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. That tells me that if we have evidence of people in this hemisphere going back solidly 14,000 years, well, they didn't just spring up out of the earth 14,000 years ago. They didn't show
0: up that day. Yeah. (laughs) They were
1: probably doing whatever they were doing for a really, really long time. And I think anytime you come up with a date, I think you can probably add at least 50 percent to that. And to account for when they got mm-hmm. to where they were, right? Yeah. I mean, at least. So, I wouldn't surprise me if 20,000 years is a really solid time frame. And it wouldn't surprise me if we went back earlier than that. Mm-hmm. And there even could be time frames when we went back way earlier than that. But then, you know, society flourished for whatever reason. But then a, an ice age hit or something and mm-hmm. killed everybody. Mm-hmm. And then... Later on, more people came.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, there's yep. been
1: stuff like that all the time. Yeah, it's so.
0: definitely possible. All I'm asking for is evidence. That's all.
1: <laughs> Probably not going to get it.
0: Just give me a little bit of evidence. Come on. It's,
1: uh, it's under that Walmart over there.
0: It <laughs> can't be so, that hard. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> it's actually really hard. It's actually pretty difficult. It's, yeah. And yeah. it's like, I'm demanding evidence and I'm not even doing any of that work. So. It's true. Yep. Thanks, yeah. guys. Appreciate you. Nice. All
1: right. Well, with that, we're out. Hopefully, we'll see you next week. We I don't know, will
0: definitely see you next week. Uh, we're a little busy right now. It's kind of a rough month for us. We've got some travel stuff. I'm and... going to guarantee
1: it. There's other good shows on the APN. <laughs> if you don't find something from us, go, go to one of those. Oh, hey, and real quick, too. If you've ever tried to click on one of the links to our affiliates in our show notes, like Liquid IV, which I've actually been drinking. It's a it's an electrolyte supplement. Yeah. My doctor actually told me to do that. So it's a really good thing uh, for that but it's also good for dehydration. Anyway, I just recently found out that if you actually click on the link in the show notes, it doesn't give you the percentage, right? At least yeah. not for liquid. But if you listen to our our ad, the code is TAS. Yeah. And if you go there and you punch in TAS, you legit get 20% and off. And you get the discount. Yeah. yeah. And that's, pretty, that's a pretty good discount because yeah. that stuff's not cheap. Yeah. The one I was looking at was like $90 for 56 packets. But it's really high quality stuff. It is. But take off 20%, it's down into the 70s. So. Yeah. Anyway, with that, we're out. See you guys next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day.